Welcome to Act 2 of Dark Nexus. New locations, a totally new set of circumstances to adjust to and try to figure out, and a bunch of new characters to meet as we head out into the wider world for the first time. We've been having a great time recording the second act so far, and we're so thrilled that you are here to share it with us. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen, and tell a friend about us if you can. And thanks to Derek and all of our supporters on Patreon. Your ongoing contributions are making this show not just possible, but sustainable in the long run. Thank you, thank you, thank you to each and every one of you. Act 2 starts now. Welcome back to Dark Nexus. My name is Rob. I'm the Game Master. And our four players are... I'm Katie. I'm Paul. I'm Robert. And I'm Johnny. Tonight, we kick off the second book of the Strange Eons Adventure Path, The Thrushmore Terror. Can I say something? It is three years to the day of our very first recording session of book one of Dark Nexus. (laughs) How about that? That is so amazing. That is so insane. Mm -hmm. It was just a pandemic ago. We thought it would take us just a... Nine months. Yeah. Whew. Okay, that blows the mind. Uh, but tonight, we kick off the second book of Strange Eons, Thrushmore Terror, written by Tito Liotti. We recorded a little recap episode covering the highlights of Act One. If that's useful to you before you listen to tonight's chapter, please check that out if so. But we are hungry to jump in, so let's get to it. Dark Nexus, Act Two, Prologue. Connection is fading. It's almost gone now. And in a dark cell, the prisoner stirs. It's chained by the neck, by the wrists, and by the ankles to a grim, curved granite wall. It sits in the waste excreted by its body. And it is in agony. It may actually die. This thought causes the prisoner, against all instincts of self-preservation, to wail in terror and rage, writhing in its chains. And for a brief moment, it effectively blacks out. The concept of death is nearly, nearly unfathomable. And not just as an individual, selfishly, but to allow itself to die would be to commit perhaps the greatest crime it could possibly commit against its entire species. The loss it would represent is incalculable. But still, it may actually die. And time is running out. The connection is almost gone. But while it's still there, while it's still there fleetingly, a final attempt, one last try, what would do it? What would punch through? It just tried to find them by accessing the moment of their birth. And it thought it finally succeeded, but Instead, it only only found memories from their later childhoods. It didn't make sense what to do, what to do. 
may be its last chance. Locating the memory of their births as individuals didn't work. But this bizarre little family did have another sort of birth. Bell tolls. And together, we see a scene from the past. One last scene. We see it, and your characters see it. It's 4703, 15 years ago. We're on a dock in Casimir. R.I.P. Longfist and Tyrrell. They lie dead in the nearby warehouse. Riddle lies slaughtered in the open air a scant 15 feet away. And Jane's gone. Jane ran away. She turned into a wolf and hightailed it to the north, off into adventures unknown. We see Dr. Gulliver Vaticus. Clean-cut, clean-shaven in his Renaissance daredevil get-up. He is talking to the stranger. This thing that appears to be a woman, tightly bound in yellow leather with milky white eyes. In a wriggling mouth covered in a scarf. She's wiping Riddle's blood off her rapier. So, did you get... Did you get what you said you were going to get? Yes. It seems some of my cargo has escaped, but yours was in the office with me. And the stranger returns to the warehouse, clop, 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 on her hooved feet. And then, a young boy steps out of the darkness to join Dr. Vaticus. He's around five or six, maybe seven, pale and thin. Looks like his joints are kind of messed up. He's hiding behind a mop of dark black hair. It's Brayden. No scars, no rot. He sees the mutilated corpse across the way. Riddle's face is almost entirely dissolved and chewed to shreds. And little Brayden wraps his arm around his father's leg. Just a brief sidebar here. Just to start to place ourselves in what's happening. The ray of the present is experiencing this memory through young Braden's eyes. Soon, the stranger returns, leading two humanoid figures, their hands tied behind their backs, bags over their heads. She brings them out onto the pier and forces them to their knees. They don't struggle, really. As promised, they should do nicely. Excellent. Oh, the Count's going to be pleased. So, uh, the Braden. Your, your, your new friends are here. You want, you want to take a look? Go ahead. The young boy steps forward to the figure on his right. It's male, huge, unbelievably huge. Gray-green skin. His arms are covered in tattoos, but, hey, Robert, they're sparser. And unlike the tattoos today, they don't seem to be simply random shapes and patterns. They still look crude, they still look as though they were done by hand, but now there appear to be recognizable objects amongst them. Is that a sun or something? Maybe a, a leering face? Braden pulls the bag off his head and sees a teenaged half-orc. He seems out of it, clearly drugged, and also bruised, battered, and severely roughed up. But slowly, his dull yellow eyes open and... 
Braden Vaticus and Grook Riptusk see each other for the first time. And the grip of the present is now experiencing this memory through Riptusk's eyes. Braden reaches over to the other figure and pulls the bag off his head. It's another teenager, this one a human. No triangle tattoos, no visible metal teeth. He's terribly, terribly sunburnt. His head is shaved. After a moment, his eyes open and... Braden Vaticus and... Let's call him Roni, because that's what he was calling himself at this point in time. They see each other for the first time. Then into this charged moment, a final figure steps out of the darkness. It's a woman, the woman through whose eyes the current day Dora experiences this memory. Golden skin, metallic silver hair, deep amethyst eyes. She's bundled in black robes and a black cloak, and she's she's holding something. And Tima stares down, down at the cluster of Brayden, Rip Tuscan Roni on the pier, and a nexus point, a birth, a beginning. Roni's coming too. His brown eyes go from dim and glassy to the piercing sharpness we all recognize from later in his life. He looks around, studying the scene, evaluating, calculating, and his gaze finally settles on Dr. Vaticus. And he speaks in a voice none of his companions recognize. Not really. Not yet. You're responsible for all this? So, so what if I am? <laughs> See, my uncle taught me about cost and consequence. The price to be paid for crossing the line. Oh, oh, I've crossed the line, have I? You've taken something from me. And from my friend Grip here. That was not yours to take. Something no one has the right to take away from me. Oh, yeah? Dr. Vaticus draws a syringe and stabs it in Roni's neck. <laughs> Roni howls in pain. His eyes start to go blank again, but he's fighting it. He's fighting it so hard. So, uh, what are you going to do about it, huh? Huh? <laughs> Without waiting for an answer, Dr. Vaticus turns and stabs Rip Tusk with another syringe. The half-orc kind of immediately slides sideways into an altered state, but Roni is howling and howling with rage. Hey, shut your faith, kid! Who the hell you think you are, huh? Roni is writhing in an epic battle between his exhausted brain, the old drugs, the new drugs. He briefly loses ground, and then he's compelled by the drugs to answer the question that was asked. Who the hell do you think you are? St... 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 Downey. No, 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 no. Stoicher. Roni Stoicher. Roni Stoicher, huh? Don't you speak his name. Oh, what? What? What do you think you're going to do to me, huh? Roni Stoicha? With his last whisper of self, he pushes forward and pierces through the drugs. And guess what, Johnny? To give you that definitive answer to the question you asked me immediately after the end of Act One, the character you currently call Gull is experiencing this memory through Roni's eyes. What do you think you're going to do to me? I'm going to take everything from you. Your stuff, 
your name, your life, everything. I'm going to rip them out of your hands, crawl deep inside them, make them mine and then break them. What you robbed from me, myself, my selfhood, my, me, me, mine, I will steal from you a hundredfold. And you'll never see me coming. I will take and take and take. Brayden releases his father's leg and takes a step back. Not back to mummy, never, never to her, never to mummy. Just away. There is a serious chill in the air. I swear this on my uncle's name and on my grandmother's memory. This is my curse upon you. It has been spoken. And Roni collapses. Dr. Vaticus seems shaken. Little Brayden starts crying. And so does someone else. For there's a rustle amidst Tima's dark black robes, and as she whispers, shh, we notice for the first time that Tima is cradling a small child in her arms. And the vision fades because the connection has been cut. Our friends, they're on their own now. And here we go. Chapter 36. Book two, (laughs) y'all. Okay, so it is, as far as we know, the evening of the third day of the month of Neth, the end of autumn, the beginning of Aviston's descent into winter. Four companions, along with crossbow-toting Jared, are traversing the surface of a mist-shrouded lake in an old, weather-beaten rowboat. Another rowboat splashes alongside them, containing Vauston, Nasa, Danae, Barnabas, and Bates. Tolman stayed back, along with Den, Erwin, Mura, and uh, fake Dr. Elburn, to tend to the surviving apostles and to watch Loic and the kids until the boats returned. The air is crisp and cool and damp. It's drizzling now. Our companion's breath fogs in the air. The boat creaks. The lake reeks of dead fish and something more unsavory. These tenuous allies, bound by so many shared experiences, some of which they remember, most of which they don't, have finally left Briarstone Isle behind them, for now. After 11 days of trial and confusion, they survived the haunted hunting grounds of a Tatterman, though not without scars, mental and physical. And they've left the dimension of dreams behind them, for now. They never quite fully crossed over, but thanks to the ungodly mess caused by our ritual in a book called The Chain of Nights, they were touching the dreaming every second of every day since they woke up. And as they begin to fully slip the shackles of the dimension of dreams and emerge into the real world for the very first time, they can tell that they are entering the real world. Simple details, simple details around them now tighten and grow crisp. The planks of the boats coalesce from a loose, hazy idea of wood into the reality of wood. Splinters and knots and little rotted out bits. And the specific differences between the liquidness of the water and the solidness of the boat and the emptiness of the air, these states of being are all separating, 
falling into place. You hadn't realized exactly how unreal everything around you had looked and felt for the past 11 days, but now, now, now it crashes home to each of you that everything you've experienced thus far, not that it was a dream, because it wasn't, but that it kind of did happen in a dream. And now, here in Act 2, it's time to start dealing with the real world. The weight of your ages and the specific aches and annoyances of the flesh start crashing home to each of you. Maybe Dora's late middle-aged eyesight is a little less sharp out here than it had felt inside the asylum. Maybe the itching on her neck is starting to feel more pronounced, sharp and throbbing. Maybe the stumps of Grip's severed fingers, which had been kind of unnoticeable back in Briarstone, maybe that deep, never-ending ache of phantom limb pain is starting to creep back in. Maybe the rotten-ass, sour rust taste in Gull's mouth starts to hit him as he wonders how he ever got used to having those god-awful nasty teeth he's got. And maybe for the first time, Ray actually starts to feel, I mean really feel, Polly, what having your flesh actively rotting away feels like. And it feels like torture. It's agony. And you all have headaches because you, you all heard the bell. And now you remember hearing the bell. And as you look at each other in your boat, you now know that Ray uses that name rather than Brayden to deliberately spite his mother. And you know that the person currently calling himself Gull once called himself Roni Stoicha in honor of his uncle. You think Rip Tusk now when you look at Grip. Well, Gull doesn't. He'll always be Grip to you. And you think Anathema when you look at Dora. And you know now, to answer a question one of you posed back in chapter 10, I think it was Johnny, you know now that there is, or there was, a kid. And as you depart that liminal space between planes, as your subconscious mind is being stripped of its supernatural connection to the dimension of dreams, you really see each other. As I was starting to think about what these four people look like right at this moment, it was a really fun exercise for me because almost everything that you have on you that you can see tells some of the story of Act 1. You all woke up with nothing, so everything you now have with you is something you scrounged up on one of your adventures in Briarstone Isle. Ray probably looks the closest to how he appeared in Chapter 3 upon first emerging from the basement. He's still got the black chainmail, the black buckler, still carrying the spiky morning star. We even now know its name, Horrorflame. The new touches are the simple clothes he stole from the personal effects storage, and he's also wearing a deep gray cloak of resistance lifted from the corpse of a faceless orderly in the day room closet, <laughs> which is closed at his neck by Ratch Mamby's brooch of shielding. <laughs> <laughs> Dora is wearing the simple shirt and loose-fitting pair of trousers she took from the personal effects storage, along with the gaudy pink cowboy boots you all found in the lockers in the ruined nurse's office where you fought Dr. Latchkey. See what they're made of. <laughs> they, well, they're lined with cat skin. A leather cord hangs around her neck, fitted with the magical talismans, talisman you stole out of Dr. Lissandro's desk. A bright red cloak of resistance hangs about her shoulders, formerly Ratch Mambi's, which has magically resized for her. Grip also has some simple clothes he took from personal effects storage, but unlike Ray, he has set aside almost all of the equipment he originally found in the torture dungeon. He's now wearing a dark black chain shirt, and a velvety black cloak of resistance, both of which originally belonged to Winter Klaschka before she was murdered. It probably took some doing to squeeze his monstrous physique into that armor, but he found a way to do it. And he wears an amulet of natural armor taken from a fallen apostle, 
And he carries a magical wooden shield once owned by some unknown soul who became ghoul food many, many days ago. And of course, he now also carries the 900-year-old Trice family sword, Red Destiny. I wonder what Sir Evan Trice, Knight of Ozum, would think if he knew that his blade was now being wielded by the person who apparently gruesomely murdered the last of his bloodline. <laughs> and talking about fitting into armor not originally made for you, the person we're calling Gull is somehow wearing the gray studded leather once made for grip. This probably involved losing some bits of it, drastically shortening straps, and generally whittling away at it to get it small enough to fit on his sparse frame. And one over that, he's got some dandyish gloves, fancy leather shoes, green bowler hat, purple tailcoat, all of which he stole out of personal effects. <laughs> and tucked into his belt is Dr. Oathsday's magical red dagger and the alchemical torch. So we're rowing now. We're heading over to the shore, heading to Thrushmore. We're following Valston and Nasa's lead because they know best which way to head. And it's a good thing they do because as the waves rock against your boat and as the fog rises and the rain slowly increases, you realize that the possibility of getting utterly and potentially hopelessly lost out here is a very real possibility. Lake Incarthen is over 400 miles wide east to west, nearly 400 miles wide north to south. It is the size of a small sea and some dangerous shit lives in it. You don't want to get lost in Lake Incarthen. Mm. It's only a couple of miles to Thrushmore, but the boats are old, the lake is choppy, everyone's exhausted. You've been rowing for about half an hour, and you're probably only about halfway there, so there's time, if we wish, and I suspect we do. It's the beginning here of book two. Time to check in with the characters. Before they start talking to each other, what, what, what are they all thinking and feeling right now, in this moment, as we bridge the gap between Act 1 and Act 2. Dora doesn't like leaving the island. She never wants to see it again. In her mind, she is 11 days old. This vision that they all just share, this memory, is so disturbing to her that she kind of, she recognizes that she is resisting it actively to say I am not that word um, but she also knows she is that word <laughs> and uh, uh, to Dora these 11 days her life is a series of assumptions and corrections thinking you know something and then being shown that you don't right. she um, still feels the word remember has a different connotation at this moment <laughs> in light of that memory. Yeah. Um, she has spent those 11 days seeking illumination, the same illumination that blinded her for many days that made her befriend <laughs> a creature that she believed was speaking to her that she now knows was not. She mm -hmm. misses him so much. Mm -hmm. She can knows. See him. He's right over on the next I boat. I know, but it's not, <laughs> it's not the, the same. same. It's Aww. not the same. When she looks at Barnabas, she just sees that naked guy who was next to her. <laughs> <laughs> that, she that she was holding yeah, so Yeah, like, oh my gently. God. Um, <laughs> so she is, uh, she, but looking ahead at, toward the shore, her, her real foremost thought is that they are entering a world that remembers them better than they remember themselves so she is telling herself memory is not the same thing as truth hmm. love it well Grip's sitting there and head is pounding and 
fing- fingers are pounding. Fingers are throbbing, head is pounding, and he's just looking at these these four people that he just spent. I mean, you say it's eleven days, but you know, it's a sure. lifetime. It's no years. Sure, uh, <laughs> weeks, years, whatever. And he's just thinking about the the how his opinions of these different people have morphed and changed and and evolved over these days and. And you know he's it, everyone is seems so foreign to him, and Dora and Ray, he he knows there's this. I mean, he understands it better now that we he's had this vision, which is not helping the headache, the, the vision that he just had. <laughs> he knew there was some sort of mother son connection, but did not know what it was. But what he did know for a fact was that they both seemed to be driven by compassion, and that they both seemed to genuinely want to help other yeah. people, yeah. which was very foreign to Grip. Um, that's never been his mode of operations, and he doesn't feel it's ever been something that was turned towards him. And he always assumed that that kind of attitude towards things was synonymous with weakness. But he also knows that the two of them are, are pretty, pretty far from weak. Yeah. Uh, so that that challenges his worldview a little bit. And then Gull, Roni, Stoicha, whatever, he has a hard time looking at that face right now because. Uh, that's the most stark connection to what he's been shown of his past. Yeah. Uh, ever since the um, Erwin showed shared the story with him of yeah, the two yeah. of them before they they, they evidently murdered uh, Doctor Trice. But what he does know for sure is that this guy's a just a fucking wild card, and <laughs> and and that that while they 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 have definitely shared moments of you know. <laughs> band of brothers, brothers in arms type of moments during yeah. the last 11 days. For sure. Uh, this guy ate Ratch Mambi and <laughs> sliced <laughs> his own face off. So, um... Oh, that must hurt, too. Best oh, not God. to take my <sighs> eyes off him for too long, because um, he'll probably do anything. And then he also realizes, no, there's not just four. There's, a, there's another one on the boat with us. But Tima, he feels like he understands a little more. Uh, rage and scorn, uh, cross me and I'll kill you. Uh, betrayal, nice and um, simple. Yeah. That all, yeah. that all seems. Even though most of his memories are are, are mush, that seems familiar to him. Um, and the memories he has been shown have not given him any comfort. He's he's confused by the cruelty and pleasure he seems to have taken in his shows of force, and he certainly felt shame when Erwin confronted him. And he can see, like, he can see this faint little mm, of him not being that anymore. That is just, like, right there. That he can almost touch it. But then he also can't deny that he still feels most himself and most at peace if he's putting a fist through a face. Yeah. And that he really did know what Denman was saying more than he let on uh, at the time. Yes. yes. <laughs> and especially as thoughts of Lowell's uh, creep into his head, he is starting to feel especially uh, punchy and stabby. Oh, yeah, yeah. Awesome. I think Ray can piggyback (laughs) on that thought because uh, there's also this trajectory of, like, finding goodness and finding a connection through acting compassionately. I feel like from Ray discovering his power and thinking about what the nature of this power was, leading to looking into religion, feels now to Ray like dogma is not important anymore. 
trying to follow some kind of idea of what's right versus what's wrong is not is not helpful to us we had our choices taken away from us and we're coming to understand that and I feel like what we share in common in this vision I feel a deeper connection to the four of us reclaiming our identities we, we, it's, still, it's still so much of a mystery of where what happened to us and why and so I feel like the reckoning for Count Lowell's is is coming ashore in the four of us. Hmm. And that's where I that's where I think Ray has gone from like, am I doing good enough? How how <laughs> how good can I be? Can I be even better than good? <laughs> to like fuck that. Huh. It's not about being good or being bad. We we have right here in front of us four people who just survived the most incredible thing, right? And we have a chance to uh, reclaim our lives, and so the world's going to have to, the world's going to have to adjust for us. We're not going to have, we're not going to adjust for some <laughs> deity or for someone else's idea. That's what I'm feeling for Ray That's right so now. So interesting. So I was thinking of him like meditating on these like holy symbols. He's got this huge collection of holy symbols, right? He's collected throughout in his filthy sack. His filthy <laughs> stuff <laughs> stuffed in his filthy sack. Three year throwback right there. Yep. Right. <laughs> and uh so I imagine him like first like taking the um the holy symbol around his neck and like f- looking at it, looking at the songbird and feeling the rotting skin on his face and thinking like this is incorruptible is part of the mantra of Shailen and I'm I'm a walking corruption how can I expect to try and uh, adhere to something that doesn't fit for me and then I so throw it, flipping that just throw it and drop it into the water off the boat <sighs> Right into Lake and wow. Okay. And then picking up a skull with chains and spikes wrapped around the eyeballs and thinking, this feels more like it. You know, this is oh our, God. this is where <laughs> oh we've been. This is it. You know, this is the death, the torture, the pain, the murder, the flat out murder that we've been committing. This kind of feels more closer to me. And then I think of all of the, the all the images of like people smack getting smashed in the head. <laughs> it's like all the brains that went flying over the past uh, week and a half. Right? All the gore you've been covered in. All the in. gore we've been covered in. The the glow of the firelight from the pile of burning rat carcasses and <laughs> while ref- reflecting off of Gull's eyes as he as tears he flesh from rat Never gonna live that down. Bones. <laughs> Um, and then, and then Dora's face again, like smiling and having that sense of like, oh, we do that. There is something worth, worth going forward for, but it's not going to be found among all of this. And I look again, looking back at my hands and all these like symbols and old ideas and hmm. other people's ways of getting through life, but our life isn't normal anymore and these old ways aren't going to help us I don't think so I 
let those holy symbols drop out of my hands. You drop them all in the lake. And I drop them all into the lake. I, I love that Grip's sitting there going, he's so fucking compassionate. <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> and he's meditating on Zonkuthan. Yeah. Wow. Oh. You, just to clarify, you also dropped the Zonkuthan symbol into yes. the lake. Okay. Yes. Oh, they all went down. Okay. They all went down. Just can you tell me secretly, though, Paul, did you pocket the Zonkuthan? <laughs> no, I didn't okay, pocket okay, the Zonkuthan. Okay, okay. <laughs> Let me see your sheet. <laughs> Let me see your sheet. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Thank you. I think before this moment of connection occurred, Gull was sitting there, probably like in a corner of the boat, as far away from the three of them as he could possibly get. Oh, looking, he's still so close to that fear, right? I gotta remember that. Like he went through that awful supernatural yeah, yeah. fear experience, yeah. right? Thank, like thank you. A half hour ago, yeah. Right? yeah. So so recently, thank you, Johnny. I forgot uh, about that. And and not not even able to look them in the eyes. Huh. Just literally, kind of like looking at the water, maybe having like a hand just kind of dangle in the water as we go by. And I'm assuming that Grip is probably the one rowing us. Probably, yeah. And he's feeling such abject. Shame, absolute shame and uselessness, and as if he is nothing but an anchor around his friends, and that he is uh, a liability. And and he remembers what Dora said before they went up the stairs. She said, "You know who we are." right now is what matters and 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 who we are right now is enough hmm. and he thinks i wasn't enough i'm not enough they're enough they're more than enough and i failed them and when i needed to step up to help i didn't and so that's where he's at in this moment when like this connection happens yeah. and he's given this new information. Yeah. And in this moment of, of reliving this experience of, of being given some of his actual memories back, he is filled with such absolute rage that not that what was taken from him didn't start five days, seven days ago. Right, right. It started over a decade and a half ago. It started almost two decades ago when he was a teenager. Yeah. The taking away of his life and of Grip's life. Yeah. Who from from what he witnessed, what he experienced, was his was his friend. Closest friend. That this this remolding of them, the opportunities that they would have had to choose to be who they wanted to be mm. was completely stolen from them. And he hears the promise, the vow, the curse, and he can't see his uncle's face. <laughs> he can't remember his grandmother's voice. Mm-hmm. And the loss that he thought that he had felt is renewed like 10,000 times. Yeah, yeah. And he just starts to break down and cry. And he, in this moment, is thinking about Gulliver Vaticus. And he thinks about him and he knows. He doesn't know how he knows, but he knows that that son of a bitch 
did not die on that fucking table. Mm. Uh-huh. He knows that that bastard is still alive out there, mm. and he is still pulling their fucking strings. <laughs> he is still making them dance around like puppets. He is still controlling their lives and sending them off to do whatever the fuck it is that he's trying to do for whatever fucking reason. He doesn't know why. And he's going to make him pay. Yeah. And he, and in this moment, as he's like, he, uh, you know, after he like sort of like gets through like the snot and the tears and stuff <laughs> yes, like that, yes, yes. He, he turns back around to his friends and says... I'm Roni Stoicha. Nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you too, Roni. So wait one fucking minute right here. <laughs> what? Are you telling me that that was all an act this whole fucking 11 days just now? Or were you really Gulliver Vaticus? What the fuck is going on, man? I learned about it the same time you did. I don't know who gave us that information. I don't know where it came from. But I got new pieces of the puzzle. This face is an unrecognizable face. Those of you that may have caught a glimpse of what he was partially seeing in the mirror so many chapters ago, like eight or nine or seven or whatever that was, mm-hmm. his as he adopts this new voice... Remembers... Yeah, remembers this voice. It triggers something in him physically. Yeah. It triggered, like... He's carrying himself differently, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's like the thing of, like, someone who's shrunken down, and then in that rage and that fury, it, you know, it's like his spine grows, like, another, like, five inches. Yeah. And this face now no longer has the tattoos, and he's holding it differently, he's carrying himself differently, he's talking differently. He does look like a different person as much as somebody wearing the same clothes and, you know, could possibly look. So this is a flavor thing. Yeah. But to Dora's psychic sensitivity, does he mm. feel like a different person? He does. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's refreshing. Do you still know how to <laughs> you still know how to do all the things that you were able to do, as far as you know? Are you are you asking me? <laughs> I am fucking asking you. So what are you? You could do the things because they were yours. But now you're not that guy. So can you still do the things? Do you still need your stuff? Yeah, I'm not fucking magic. (laughs) All right, that's fair. So do I still hate you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's not your father anymore, I don't think, so you can cut that thread. Yeah, you you do feel with absolute certainty that this human being is not your father. Never was your father. That means we're not married. (sighs) (laughs) Sigh of relief. (laughs) Wow. It's as though you, in the few state that we were in, you fulfilled your own curse. Hmm. No. No? It hasn't been fulfilled yet. Right. I understand. Oh, wait, I thought you were talking about... But a little bit, you did. You took all his things. 
Perhaps that's why you spoke like him. Maybe. Why'd you call me Gulliver then? I didn't though. I named the ring belonging to Gulliver and you claimed the ring. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. Totally hmm. wild. Yeah. So you were not aware. Wait, were you aware the whole time? Of what? That you were not Gull? No. <laughs> Literally, literally, <laughs> however many years ago now it was, when I had to read that thing saying, I'm Romney, I was like, who the fuck is Romney? What the fuck is that? I'm like, who is, who is Romney? So then when you read the, and maybe we talked about this, but I've forgotten, when we read the patient records, was that the first you knew that that, that, was a, that this was going on? He knew nothing. I knew nothing. That's fantastic. <laughs> I still nothing. know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> what I know is literally what you all know. You all have the same it. exact I information so that so I good. have. There is no I, I'm new on a, information. I'm on a multi-year Johnny Rainfuck trajectory here. <laughs> there is, yeah. And thank you for rolling along with it, John. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Love That's it. That's fantastic. So yes, there has been no secret knowledge of anything. There yeah. has been no extraneous planning there has been none of that stuff it's great I'm trying There's to do it all been... on air as much as I can yeah. Yeah. so it. cool I love it so some new things came up <laughs> grip as you're looking down at your arms while you're rowing the whole party towards the shore <laughs> as Jared like stands you above do. you with his crossbow you're looking this way and that looking this way and that uh, you, you're taking a look at those at those tattoos and as this memory of what they used to look like comes through you do see it. It looks as though they had been one thing, and then you or whoever did the tattooing then took everything that was there and continued it out, made it more complicated, made it more extensive, kind of broke all meaning attached to the symbols and stuff that were in there. But as you look down at it, you can see, oh, yeah, that that circle... If you take away all this, this extra squiggle, you take away that, you take that little bit of shading, you take all this stuff away, it was, it's clearly, it was a sun at one point. Mm-hmm. Now it's just a random circle and a bunch of random shapes. And the same thing with what looks to you like may have once been this, this leering, fanged face as well. And the other, aside from this breaking of the connection between Brayden and Roni Stoitsche, this... The other new piece of information here is there is another child. Yeah. And presumably if you are, and you do now feel that you are, Ray, her or Tima, it's hard to, yeah, biological child that there is a sibling. You have a sibling Uh and you have have had, we don't know, uh, another child. Is that something that my sense from the conversation in chapter, I think it was 10, was that Dora really so entirely put that out of her head as like, I, it doesn't even matter, I'm not going to think about it. Is that where she's been the whole time? Well, or? I think um, the, me- the the more meaningful relationship is the one that they have developed yeah. together. Yeah. Um, so you call it whatever you want. Great, you want to call me mom. I don't, that doesn't, she doesn't feel that. She doesn't feel that connection that a mother has with a child she's given birth to. Um, but... She is extraordinarily maternal towards Ray. Yeah. yeah. And that means more to her than information that comes in as facts and data. You have two children, you, you know, like that feels like it belongs to someone else. Still does. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. 
Have we reached the shore yet? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to ask about uh, the Chain of Knights. <laughs> so that's in Dora's possession? Got it, yes. Are you flipping through it? No. No. You're keeping it away? Yeah. Now's not the time. Certainly. Okay. If there ever is a time, it's not while we're rowing away from <laughs> Brahastone Isle on Lake Carthen. Also, um, she doesn't have any idea what they're walking into. She doesn't know if people are looking for this book or if people know they're coming. Or, you know, like there's there's a lot of unknowns. She's not going to be sitting there reading this. But apparently is the most important book in Thrushmore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when, they, when they come ashore. And we have with us in the nearby boat, mm-hmm. at least, Vaustin and Nasa. Yeah. As we're heading towards shore, we can assume that we're we're getting close now. Very foggy, really starting to come down rain now. There is a there is a moon out tonight, so there is so it's not like pitch black. You can see the the looming approach of what looks to be incredibly rugged, very hilly terrain. You're passing as you go by several long stretches of tall cliff faces, very rocky, very sheer, very dangerous looking. You know, again, it's it's dark, but you're getting like glimpses of these uh, through the moonlight. And you see in the distance the approach of what must be the town, the way you're heading towards it. But still from a distance here, you're all struck by a noticeable lack of light. There are some little pockets of light that I'll talk about as we get a little closer, but if there's anything at any point that you want to ask amongst yourselves or talk to Valston or Nasa. Is there some sort of curfew in the town? Yeah, could we make any knowledge local, anything like that? Uh, sure, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'd really like to ask the pirate nurse. (laughs) She'll uh, she'll bandy it about with Roni. (laughs) 25. Yeah, so as as you're pondering. Shall I call you Roni now, Johnny? Sure. Okay, I will. As you're pondering this over, Roni, you don't recall any specific statutes about that. You don't recall any anything in the laws or any anything about that. In fact, you sort of think of the place as a place that you know, people work hard, live hard, lead hard lives. There tends to be a fairly active drinking scene in this small town, and you would probably expect actually some activity late at night of the, the fisher folk and little the, work hard play hard exactly exactly and uh oh yeah Nisa can oh, oh goodness I've got to be Nisa again it's so fun to be back to Nisa I have missed her sir Nisa, Nisa's like oh yeah yeah no no uh yeah our, our friend here is right uh, I, I I've, I've never heard of a of a curfew and whenever I've gone in uh, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a vacation I wouldn't vacation in Thrushmore. It's a god-awful place. Um, I passed through town on the way to go back to home to, to, to visit family and the like. I, I know, this this strikes me as, as very unusual. And you can see Vaustin. So Vaustin's, Vaustin's got the like equivalent position to Jared in their boat, standing up with crossbow, sort of scanning the horizon and stuff. You just see Vaustin nod very stoically. So something is wrong. Very stoically, like, this is weird. Are we going to a dock or something? Would we know of a better place to land yes. other than... Oh no, no. The problem. So, the, it's very, it's very rocky and very cliffy, just like we've passed up there and, and further down the shore. This is sort of the harbor where, where where ships can come in. As you're getting closer now, you're on, you're on, you're on. 
you kind of get a sense of, again, late at night, just by moonlight, you get a sense of the geography of the town, which consists of... This is basically Transylvania, yeah? Yes, Transylvania meets New England. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your basic Innsmouth. Y- y- yeah. Yes. Yeah. Fish people. The Great. town seems to be perched on a whole bunch of small but very steep hills. You can see from the shadow of them cast from the moon behind them, in particular, three very tall hills and one kind of medium-sized hill, but the rest of it is very, very steep, very, very rolling. It looks as though the town is probably perched along the side of these hills on the shore, and there, there are also several islands very, very close to shore that look as though they might also have maybe buildings on them as okay. well. So the town looks like to be a combination of on land, on islands. Mm-hmm. One of the three big hills is on an island. You can, you can tell that. Everything atop the three large hills is very dark. You can't get a much of a sense of You can tell that the one furthest inland looks like it has a structure or a building of some sort on it. The medium-sized hill very clearly looks as though it has a castle or a fort on it. There is some light up there. Like maybe you would guess distance out, but maybe a couple of torches in front of an entrance door, maybe a couple of guards walking around with torches. Safe to assume that's Lowell's residence? Not safe to assume that. Safe to assume. Unknown. And then you see what looks to be a fairly large ship moored at a dock on the outside of one of the islands, kind of closest to where you're going to be landing, and it is all lit up. And it looks like a very big, very flat, almost more like a, not not, not quite a barge, but more barge-like than, say, a giant schooner. It's got one mast, and it's very long, and it looks like as though it just has one building on it. You can see some shapes moving around there, and there are a ton of torchlights and activity on that ship. Any symbols on the ship? Um, not that you can see, not yet. And then you can see that, in effect, there's kind of a river passing between the islands and the shore. Can you picture that? Yeah. It looks as though sort of halfway down that stretch inside where you, like if you were to take the kind of river portion in, it would lead to what looks like a fairly large building that has some eerie glowing green lights attached to it. Hard to tell what the building is. <laughs> looks big, a couple stories. And then, let's see... As we're approaching, let's let me just, let me give me a, let's, let's roll some dice. Let's let's give me a few per, uh, perception checks. See if anybody does anything, anything else. look or feel familiar. Not yet. Uh, so what do we get? Eighteen. Uh, Twenty-one. First roll of book hey. two. Twenty-one. Hey, hey. Griff knows a thing. <laughs> I rolled a ten. Twenty-nine. Twenty-nine for Roni. Oh, that's going to take some getting used to it. Yeah, it is for me too. Definitely take some. Time you got this, Roni. <laughs> Oh, 29. I like it. I'm 21 for, for Grip. Okay. So Grip, Grip's keeping an eye on that ship. And I think he would notice. So as you look towards town on the right, the south side of, of this, of what you'll eventually have a map to look at, is where the ship is moored. And right past that on the island, looming above the ship, is one of these three large hills. And your your orc eyes see 
What do your orc eyes see? <laughs> what looks like, and it's you know you're at a distance. You're, you're picking them up. Oh, it's because you've got the blind sight, right? I, the dark vision. Dark vision. Yeah. So yeah. you're very good. Your eyes uh, adjust to the to the darkness very very well. You see what does appear to be a tall standing stone looming atop that hill. Very hard to see because it's it's small relative to your distance from it, and it is not lit up. But you do you do. I can see the shape of it. You can see the shape of what looks like. Does is it recognizable as one of the ones that we would have seen a, a sketch of? You guess that's almost assuredly the case. Assuming that others might not see it, I'm just gonna like mention as I'm rowing. Oh, it's, there's one of those fucking standing stones up there that we saw the drawings of. I think. Oh. Uh, oh yes. Oh yes. You know the town's got two of those stones. There's they're on top of the two of the two of the big hills there in town. Strange to see them in the flesh, so to speak. Oh, yes, they're still a ways away, though. Don't get too excited. And Roni, <laughs> Roni, we're going to honor this 29. You see, wending its way down the most inland hill, the one that probably has some sort of structure on it, but it's hard to tell what right now, you see a flickering, sporadic, blue light. Imagine somebody glowing blue and like running down a hillside path, kind of like doing cutbacks and cutbacks. Like back. the trees are Yeah, sometimes obscuring it, sometimes be seen. And then when it is clearly visible, <laughs> it, it looks as though the light itself is actually sporadic. So, Such a weird metaphor. Imagine someone is glowing blue. <laughs> just, you know. <laughs> so like there's you. like something or someone glowing blue <laughs> making their way down one of the big hills there is a weird green light in a building close to in, right in town I'm so glad we're, we've come here i know it's so great and then this giant well lit ship and as you're starting to get closer now and we'll call this the point where if you decided you wanted to go towards the ship or away from the ship, this would be, we'll start to make that decision soon. But to answer Katie's earlier question, as you're looking in that direction, Grip, you pick up some heraldry on the single sail on this. It's called, it's a keelboat. I don't know my boats very well, but that's what this is technically. Okay. And you point that out to Roni, and Roni can make a check on that. Am I doing knowledge local or knowledge nobility? What am I? I would take either nobility would be a lower DC. I'm going to do local. Ooh, 21. Yeah, you're pretty sure that, that that this ship is registered in the Empire of Teldor, which is well over a thousand miles away, way down on the inner sea, where Casimir is. So basically like invaders? No. With that 21, I think you would know there's this major river, the Selen River, that goes from way, way, way up north, like north of the world wound, all the way through over a dozen nations, all the way down to the inner sea. And Lake and Carthen connects to the Selen River by some waterway, and that it is fairly common for a lot of merchant vessels and traders and stuff to have their ships registered in Teldor because of the laws, like Delaware, right? Like it's advantageous Got for them to register there. Yeah, exactly. It's all about tax laws. So and you're you're approaching, you're getting closer to town now, and you can now that you're closer, you can see that there probably are some houses that might have some lights on in them, but everyone's shutters are closed, 
It, ju- it looks as though the, the town is sealed up for the night. I've come to Barovia. Yeah. Did you say there was there was visible activity on the boat? Oh, yeah. Yeah, lots of figures moving around. Does this look like martial law curfew type thing? Hard to say. Hard to okay. say. Can we uh, make out what types of activity it is? Is it just general... On the, on the ship? Yeah, general like boat maintenance that seems normal or... Like, are they getting ready to leave? No, it looks like a bunch of uh, looks like the ship is is moored, and you you see an unusual number of people pacing the deck with ranged weapons in hand, keeping an Something's eye for activity. Definitely not preparing to leave. Roni is thinking if where we were was literally an epicenter of sort of like uh, a rift into the dimension of dreams. Yeah. And things were able to get sucked into it. Maybe things were also able to escape out of it and also then move across the water. Yeah, do we have oh yeah. Do we have any idea of how far that fog would have spread? We don't know anything. You don't know volunteers. You don't know. Yeah. What are our priorities right now? Adora's really sick. Safety. Shelter. Shelter. Killing fucking lols. There we go. Yeah. Ray is uh, remembering some forgotten lore, some old religious text, and this scenario is reminding him of like an angel of death circling houses while everyone's some sort of Pentecostal uh, <laughs> idea, and uh, there's something floating around trying to get into people's houses. But these people on the boat are exposed. They are. They're exposed, but they're both they're over water. water. Yeah. yeah. That might have something to do with whatever it is that's... And really on the outskirts of town. So Are... I'm, I have trepidation about approaching a boat that is uh, lined with people with ranged weapons who might be in a heightened state of anxiety. Agreed. Even Agreed. though I would really like the information that they might have. All my skills are down to... Because <laughs> um, you're sick and fatigued. Because I'm sick and fatigued. Uh, so I, I mean, I'm, I, but I also don't just want to walk up on shore right in the middle of whatever's going on. So I don't know if Nasa has any other ideas of where we could go for information. Oh well, normally, I mean, these are all private piers out here. Like, like normally you wouldn't, when coming into town, like uh, where when I get rowed in, I wouldn't get rowed to like that ship there. Uh, that's probably just a, a merchant vessel. I, we'd go in down. Well, down where that crazy green light is, there's a there's a bridge and a in a main public pier that empties out right onto onto Market Street and, and the like. That would be the place that I would go, but it's very strangely dark right now. Like, what what are what's going to happen if we approach this ship and say we're from Briarstone Isle? Like, yeah, I know. we're survivors we of Briarstone but Isle, they, but we don't know what they know about it. And the only thing on Briarstone Isle is an asylum where we were patients but I really feel like information before we hit the land is the way to go is the thought we're getting from Nace that this is that this does look more merchant like not military like yes and and you all the more you see of this that is the sense that you get and that maybe some of the extra activity you're seeing from these very short people with ranged weapons moving around on the ship probably halflings is of maybe not military precision, but maybe sailors and sailors, seamen and yeah. stuff right, right. suddenly like 
scrambling to keep eyes out. I think we should approach them first to find out what's going on. We we just might have to put themselves at their mercy, put ourselves at their mercy a little bit. If we can just holler out and say, we've got We've got wounded and sick, and we are looking for help. And just not show any, not try to show any flex. If, you if know we have I mean. a white flag, if you still have that white flag from earlier. We certainly have to have some still like rags and 100%, stuff like that. Hundred yeah. percent. I think we should approach the ship with our hands up. Agreed. And ask for help. I agree with Dora. So flag goes up, Jared's. Do you want to cast that spell? Sorry, Paul. Yes. Okay cast. So Ray reaches out and touches Dora and with the power of whatever he's drawing divine energy from removes the that feeling of well, devastated sickenedness and fatigueness from Dora and she's feeling just as healthy and hearty as she did when you fought the Tatterman. <laughs> You're waving the flag and you see on the deck of the ship everybody stop their Circuits are on the ship and come over to the port side of the ship. They're pointing their bows uh, in your direction, uh, uh, sort of a motley collection of, of, of crossbows and, and longbows. And you can see one person up on top of the, the single mast, like in a crow's nest kind of thing, gesturing and pointing down to the other end of the pier. Like, don't pull up right next to the ship. Pull okay. up down there, okay. down there. And you can see, as you're getting closer now, and you're, this is your intention to go there, you can see this is a very long expanse of pier, perhaps one of the places in town where ships of this size can actually tie up. Uh, so this is a long, long stretch of pier, and they're basically saying, like, go down to the other end. You going to follow that instruction? Yes. Mm-hmm. There, Absolutely. There is one person actually on the pier, not on the boat. You know, it looks like a, a human child. You assume it's probably a half-lake holding this quarterstaff with kind of a little green flag on top, just green cloth, like not an actual flag, like a cloth, uh, a flag they fashioned. And they, with purpose, start marching down to the other end of the pier where you're going to head down that We're direction. i meet them, yeah. Okay. okay. Can I make a knowledge roll on what a green flag would mean? Are these children? You don't, you don't recognize. Uh, it's just, it appears to be just a piece of cloth. Got it. Yeah. It strikes <laughs> you as maybe... An element of whimsy. Are, are these actual children? Um, we're getting close now. I have dark vision too. Yeah. The boat is definitely a bunch of halflings. Okay. This is a human child. Pale features, dark black hair, wearing this kind of like natty brown skull cap. Marching down the pier. From Taldor? Can I tell from the way they, you know, they're... Hmm. Tone of skin. Or no, you you'd think like, that they used to lobbying. You'd think that they were probably from the north. They kind of look a bit Irison. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But you know, kind of the way. Who was it? Was it? Is it Vaticus? I think it's Vaticus who is of that uh, of that stock, but had more like dark hair yeah. rather than the blonde right, hair. So right. kind of like that. Kind of like okay. that. But very pale. Very pale. Marching with purpose down to the end of the pier and you reach a place down there and now you're you know, like a football field length away yes. from town and you can tell that there are some lights inside buildings but all the buildings are sealed up and there's a little bit of a sound off to off to the west 
Um, Nothing to worry about. Where there, no, like, of revelry. <laughs> okay, all right. Like, maybe there is an inn, and maybe it's just closed up. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely not... It's not like an abandoned town. Are there town. people on the streets? No, there yeah. are no people yeah. visible okay. on the streets. Although you're close enough now, this building with the green light looks like a fairly large two-story building without any windows, really. Like from the a back. Warehouse? from the back. Yes, it strikes you kind of immediately like maybe it's a warehouse or some other building that has a function, you know, like mm-hmm. of storage or something. And this green light is fairly bright and it's coming off of some large lantern like device hung over what seems to be a door kind of on the furthest edge that you can see and you do like the one person that you see on the street in the town from your in your perspective in the dark where you're at mm-hmm. is like one guy looks like a man, like a human man size, carrying some sort of polearm and standing underneath this green light. And he can see him kind of like looking up at it, looking down, looking around, like walking back and forth a little bit. He seems shifty and fidgety. He seems pretty <laughs> effing nervous. Uh, but he's, you know, he's hundreds of feet away still. The only reason yeah. he can make out details is he's, he's under this green light, which he appears to be a little freaked out by. So you reach the end of the pier. And who's going to step up onto the... Onto the Oh, the, so the the child is coming along, coming along, and they're keeping their distance. Like they're yes. keeping back about sixty feet, and they stop, and they stand very still and upright, and they hold their little flag at a t- attention. Like it seems very official, <laughs> and it's very bizarre. Before Dora says anything, Roni reaches his hand out and touches you very gently on the hand and just says, remember, they probably know Tima. Yes. Yes, I know. Probably me, too. Yeah. Uh. How far away? Uh, They're about 60 feet up the pier. So you can see him with your doctor. So the the child is the closest person we are to contacting Yeah, the boat's another 100 feet. Uh, You passed it. Okay. Uh, and as you as you went by, all of the halflings with their ranged weapons sort of followed your two boats. So they were they were waving us to say, "Go to the pier, not the boat." Yes. Not to yeah. okay. I mean, not I, to I, go I, to I'd town. Slightly misunder- I thought they were saying go to a different end of the boat to. Oh yeah. So I yeah. okay. Now I'm on the trolley. Okay. So who's getting up on the on the pier? I, I will get up on the pier. So Dora gets a boost up onto the pier, this stone pier by grip, and you. Pull yourself up to your feet, and you know it's nice to—it's nice to kind of like after just an hour or so of sitting in this dreary, wet rowboat, <laughs> feeling sick, feeling sick, like feeling like okay, yeah, yeah, the, the sickness is gone for the moment. The seasickness is gone for the moment too. Uh, you step up there, and this little child, as you just finally get yourself in a position, the child goes, "Oi! Don't you take another step!" Look at where you're walking! I look at where I'm walking. You look down, and your foot had almost crushed a cockroach. (laughs) Don't you dare kill that living creature! I wouldn't. She gingerly. Step away from the insect! (laughs) Step back. You are a very interesting young man. The child 
looks down at themselves. Oh, shit. I forgot. This is a disguise so as to make myself appear less threatening. Of course it is. But if I'm going to do my duty for this city, it's best you experience me in all my magnificence. Oh, my God. And they reach up (laughs) an amazing flourish. They pull off the brown skull cap and transform into an even shorter halfling. (laughs) And that's the end of chapter 36. We'll pick up here next time. Oh, welcome back, everybody. Yay. Dark Nexus is a creation of Plug and Hum Productions. This podcast uses trademarks and or copyrights owned by Paizo Incorporated, which are used under Paizo's community use policy. We are expressly prohibited from charging you to use or access this content. This podcast is not published, endorsed, or specifically approved by Paizo Inc. For more information about Paizo's community use policy, please visit paizo.com slash community use. And for more information about Paizo and Paizo products, please visit paizo.com. That's P-A-I-Z-O dot com. Dark Nexus uses music and soundscapes by Sirenscape. Check them out at sirenscape.com. That's S-Y-R-I-N-S-C-A-P-E dot com. Opening and closing themes, along with additional music, composed by Rob Kozlarik. Artwork for Dark Nexus is by Matt Walquist. Special thanks to Toy, without whose generosity this project would not have been possible. And thanks to DMCP, Richard and Ari, Paul and Shannon, Chris, Scotty, Jason, Jess, Joe, Chelsea, Matt, Dave, Darren, and everyone we've gamed with over the years for all the memories and inspiration. WTPK. Oh. <laughs> Brilliant. Two tags. Season good. two tag. <laughs> <laughs>